You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Hope that you have your third cup poured by now. It is 10.50 a.m. as I record this, and I'm just going to confess, I've had four cups of coffee and an Americano already. And that wasn't my plan. I, I got an early start and realized that when I sat down to record, I was drinking my fourth cup of coffee. And about the time I started, I got a reminder that I had a meeting. And of course, the meeting was at a coffee shop. So I'm pretty well wired. I am going to have to be very careful not to speak too quickly. Hope things are going well for you. Hope you're adjusting to a uh, post-New Year season. Kelsey and I have decided to try the Whole30. Do the Whole30, the meal thing. I tried to convince her into splitting it with me and each of us taking 15, but she felt like that was not going to be effective. So, doing the Whole30, which is really not that hard so far, to be quite honest. I mean, I'm three days into it, so... Maybe it's not the best time to make that estimation. But it hasn't been too hard because I can eat meat. And if I can eat meat and drink coffee, I'm good. I could live this way for a while. I don't know. We'll let you know how it goes. Question for you today. Where were you on October 25th, 1999? Do you remember? Any idea where you were on October 25th, 1999? It was a Monday. That helps you. I know where I was. I woke up that morning in Memphis, Tennessee. And I was driving home to Cincinnati in our SUV with Kelsey and Jackson and Grayson. We only had the two boys back in October of 1999. And I remember the date really clearly because on that day, Payne Stewart, who was a professional golfer, had taken off in his private plane from, was it Florida or Georgia or someplace in the southeast And not long after they had become airborne, I think they lost all pressurization and everyone in the plane passed out. And by the time they figured it out, they were, you know, well over middle America at 30,000 feet. And CNN followed the plane the entire day. Eventually it crashed in um, South Dakota, I think. So I remember it because of that. But I also remember on that day, because as we were driving the whole time, I'm thinking we've crossed paths with this thing somewhere. Because the night before... I had had a meeting with a businessman after I had preached. And he talked to us about buying a building for the church that we were planting in Cincinnati. And it started a series of events for us, ultimately that ended with us not getting the building. But it woke things up in our heart. And it was the beginning of a journey of learning how to pray and fast. And the things that we heard from the Lord in that season are still alive today. This morning I'm going to play for you the audio from Sunday, and it was part two of our series on Egypt, the story of the people of God in a foreign land. We're going to talk about an unusual happening during their time of staying there in Egypt, where they actually take Jacob's body and bury him in Canaan and why they chose to bury him there, and the idea of what do you do with the corpse of your hopes and dreams when it looks like they've died? What do you do with those things? You thought something was going to happen, it didn't quite work out. In fact, now it looks like it may never work out. What do you do with that in your heart? Grab your Bible, pour your coffee, and let's go.
before I pray, every time I sit down to teach, I kind of ponder, and I learned this from a, a pastor that I follow on Twitter in Dallas, Josh Howerton. He said, I always ask, what do I want people to learn? What do I want them to feel? And what do I want them to do when I'm, when I'm done teaching? And uh, I thought about that a lot this week. Um, and rather than, you know, just kind of hope you all figure it out, let me just tell you really upfront what I want you to learn, feel, and do. I want you to learn some of the events of the captivity that maybe you weren't aware of uh, in, in the book of Genesis that, that I had to kind of read and go, wow, I didn't realize it quite happened that way. What I want you to feel is the weight of the disappointment of dreams unfulfilled. Some of you have dreams that you've carried for a long time and you have almost given up or have given up on them. And uh, I want you to feel the weight a little, a little bit about that. If you're like me, there are things in your past or things you have dreamed of that you don't even like to think about anymore because it just didn't happen the way you thought it was going to. I want to stir that up a little bit. It can be uncomfortable, but I want you to think about those things. That's what I want you to feel. What I want you to do as we get near the end is I want you to consciously think about that disappointment differently and what we do with it. Uh, you can do a lot of different things with disappointment, and I want to relate this to what they actually did with the body of Jacob when he died in Egypt, which is not what they thought was going to happen. Now, teaching from Zoom uh, can be real fact-oriented. You can get facts across this way really easily, and there's some good to that. The Bible is not at odd with facts. Creation was a fact. Everything came from somewhere. The love of God is a fact. Birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus is a fact. His return is a fact. But facts alone will not sustain and fuel our hearts. And if we've learned anything over the past, you know, six, eight, nine months, is that our hearts don't have as much fuel in them as we probably thought they did when we started. Uh, facts alone do not sustain our hearts. And as I was working on this message, I just kept mulling over a phrase. I want to teach this from a heart that is burning, and I want to teach burning hearts. I don't want to just rely on information. I don't want to try and convince you of something where you have to walk away today and go, well, he said that, and I guess it's true, so I have to wrestle with it. I want this to impact your heart, and I want the Holy Spirit to help internalize it for us. There's this great passage in Luke that I refer to all the time, following the crucifixion and the resurrection, when Jesus appears and he walks with the disciples, and for whatever reason, they don't recognize him. I don't know if his face is veiled or if they're just so wrapped up in their own problems, but they don't realize they're walking with Jesus. And he asks them questions, and they relay to him their adventure of the past few days. And they actually tell him this. Uh, they tell him about this teacher named Jesus that they were following, and they said, but we hoped he was the one to redeem Israel, and now we can't even find his body. Like what, what heartache, what deep disappointment. We thought he was going to be the one. We can't even find a corpse of the one we believed in. And in Luke 24, 25 and 27, he said to them, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So here you're walking along the road and you've got Jesus teaching the Bible. That'd be a great Bible study. You've got Jesus teaching the Bible and they still don't recognize him, but they admit that later on their hearts burned within him as the Holy Spirit bore witness to the truth, facts that they knew. They already knew the facts. But when their hearts begin to burn, a heart on fire can leapfrog past facts to a level of understanding you can't get any other way. And it doesn't mean the facts don't matter. 
but it means that when your heart is burning and when the, and the Holy Spirit bears witness to the words that are being taught, it means something more quickly. The presence of, the, of God in the midst of discussing the facts of Scripture changes how we process what God is saying to us. And I want to pray this morning before we start for his presence right where you are. You know, we have, those of us that grew up in church, we all have, have said it and believed it. He is omnipresent. Uh, yet when we get into this kind of setting, it's a little bit hard to believe. How can he be in that cube and that cube and that cube and that? He is in all of those cubes. And I want his presence right where you are because I want our hearts to burn with uh, the truth of the scripture this morning. So would you pray with me? Father, we love you and we gather this morning because you are good and you are faithful and you always bring something for us. So we come to you, we open your word, and we ask, would you teach us as we study together? In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we started talking about Egypt, and we talked about the complicated role that believers or the people of God have with Egypt. And we talked about two different scenarios and how they both yearned for home. The story of the Old Testament, where Joseph's descendants, the Joseph of the Old Testament, they, his descendants yearned for home to go back to the promised land. And the story of Jesus's parents taking him from Egypt or to Egypt, where they found protection and comfort in light of Herod wanting to kill all the children. You know, G Jesus' father, Joseph, could have stayed in Egypt and raised his family. You ever think about that? Uh, those of you th that have children, you understand once you have children, everything changes. The amount of stuff it takes to move around the country or to even go across town, it's just way harder than you thought. And it would be easy to understand why Joseph, Jesus's father, might not have said, why don't we just set down and set down roots here? Why don't we build a life here? There's a Jewish community here. We could make this work. But God said that his son's destiny was in another place. His son's destiny and the fulfillment of that was back in Israel. And even the difficult moves in our lives that God initiates are always for God's purposes. If you want to exercise a little bit of maturity in your life, learn to trust the Lord with the twists and turns of your life that you don't understand. I, I would love to know if there were discussions between Joseph and Mary about going to Egypt and coming back. Can you imagine? Do we really have to go? I mean, is it important that we go? We have all these prophetic words. We had shepherds. We had wise men. We've got to go. And then once we go, now we've got to go back. Why is the Lord leading us this way? There may be short-term, easier ways for things to happen, but the God that is sovereign writes good stories in the life of Jesus and also in the life of those who follow him. And he may be writing a chapter right now in your life that foreshadows the fulfillment of his plan for you. What, you know, them having to go there and come back, it was all a part of his plan. What he is making you into right now may be incomplete without the chapter that he is writing in your life, whether it makes sense or not. So Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, we're only in Egypt for a short while. We're going to focus more on the Joseph of the Old Testament. His descendants were there for centuries. Even so, because after 430 years, they were God's people and not Egyptians, they all came out. To those of you that are, are taking notes, and I would encourage you to jot things down as you go, write down the phrase, they all came out. Sometimes you need to be reminded that God's people always come out. A healthy measure of separation from the world that we live in has always been God's intention for his people. Now, I'm sure 
as they lived in Egypt. They wanted to make it a better place, but they never considered themselves primarily Egyptian. They always considered themselves Hebrew. And that kind of thinking for the people of God continued on through the New Testament. The Apostle Paul was so intent on people having their loyalty clear between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of the earth that in his second letter to the church at Corinth, he speaks in really frank terms. Let me read four verses here quickly from 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. He, we, have, we have way oversimplified this, okay? We have made this about our kids dating non-Christians. And this is so much more complex than that. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It's, it's way too simple to just interpret that as only dating and marriage. It's business. It's any situation where the convictions or lack of convictions of an unbeliever can force you to deny your own. That's, that's what it's talking about there. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial or with wickedness? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and separate from among them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Almighty God. So this just isn't limited to marriage. It's how we work. It's how we do business and how we pledge covenant loyalty to one another. Does this mean we don't do any business with non-believers? No, that's not what that means. But we do not put ourselves in compromising situations where their lack of conviction forces us to abandon our conviction. And the Apostle Paul uses like some Exodus level language talking about coming out of those situations. This idea of being separate from the world was so intrinsic to Paul's thinking that in the latter part of that passage, those last few verses where he quotes the Old Testament, when you ask yourself, what is he quoting? When you go and do the investigation, he's not quoting one passage of the Old Testament. In the last couple of verses there, he references Deuteronomy 22, Ezekiel 37, Isaiah 52, and Jeremiah 31, all in three verses. He completely pulls together a mashup of quotes with such boldness as to speak of the idea of coming out from among the world. And he says, the whole of scripture talks about this because it was his conviction that this was part and parcel of what it meant to live for Jesus, that to step into what we are called to, we had to separate ourselves and understand that we had to come out of Egypt at some point. We can't be who we are called to be if we are content to stay in contract with Egypt be it as slaves or those who think they're free, but can't be who God has called them to be because they're compromised. By the way, that's just another kind of slavery. When we think of this idea of coming out, of being a unique and a distinct people, it's easy to think, um, well, maybe they're proposing we build a commune. That's not at all what I'm saying. Earlier in uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul makes it clear he's not saying not to associate with the ungodly. He is referencing separation in a spiritual sense. Here is Paul's perspective. We live in a fallen world, and we interact with those that we live around, but we don't hitch our story to their story in such a way that leads us in any other direction than the home that God intends for our heart, and ultimately for their heart as well. 
Before the time of Jesus, the people who lived the stories of Genesis and Exodus stayed for 400 years and went from a patriarch who enjoyed a nearly uh, aristocratic standing among Pharaoh to being a people who were enslaved by a bloodthirsty regime. Some of you have seen those memes on Facebook or, or Twitter of how it started and how it's going. How it started was Joseph going to Egypt as a slave, but ascending to leadership through dream interpretation, then bringing his father and his brothers and their families down to Canaan to help them uh, escape starvation. Rather than bringing the entire group all the way to meet Pharaoh, he parks the bulk of them in a land called Goshen. And he tells them, you wait, the rest of us are going to go meet with Pharaoh. This is a little bit like the Bolanders going to Chick-fil-A. We're not all going in together, okay? We're just, some of us are going in. The rest of you stay here. And so he tells most of, of their extended family, stay here in Goshen. We are going to go in. When they arrive, this large extended family of foreigners is greeted really warmly by Pharaoh. And Pharaoh tells them in verse uh, chapter 47, verse six. This is a Genesis. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Now, Goshen to most of us is just a name. We don't think about physically where it was. It was on the eastern side of the delta of the Nile. If they were electricians or if they were plumbers, this wouldn't have mattered at all. It would have been a bedroom community to the rest of Egypt. But to those whose lives centered around agriculture, this was really good land. A man could make a life for himself in Goshen. It wasn't the place that Abraham had promised. It wasn't the promised land, but you have to do what you have to do. And at least they weren't further south and west into the desert. God provided a way for them to prosper, even in a foreign land. Even if Goshen felt like being sequestered or quarantined, if you will, 400 years later, that idea of being in Goshen really paid off. It was a place of refuge hundreds of years later as the plagues rained down on Egypt and often skipped the Hebrews because they were living in a different vicinity than the Egyptians. Exodus 8.22 says, The voice of God speaking to Moses about the plague says, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there. And you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. He said, I put you in Goshen 400 years ago. And now that you're there, it's easier to protect you from some of the plagues that are coming your way. Why well, make the point about Goshen over the years? Because even when living in Egypt, separation from Egyptians matters. I love how God provided for this for them centuries earlier. Seems like a quick decision. Here, stay a distance away from them. But obedience to that momentary thought provided great protection in the day of God's power. A life lived in submission to God is a life of preparation, even when you think you are just stumbling around. Some of you have made decisions along the way, and you didn't even know how important the decisions were when you made them. And you look back over the course of your life and you realize you charted the course for your life in a very good and healthy way. Uh, yesterday, I think was the day, was Allison and Michael's 33rd anniversary. I would bet, guys, if you look back over 33 years, you probably made some decisions along the way that you didn't realize were that important when you made them. And here you are 33 years later going, who, who would we be and where would we live had we not made those decisions? Consider for a minute the decisions of your life 
that seem inconsequential at the time and later provided you with great care. Maybe you turned right rather than left and you met a lifelong friend. You stayed home rather than you went out and the accident that might have happened didn't happen. Faith in and obedience to an active God in our day-to-day lives means every step of our life is in preparation for something to come. The Hebrews' seemingly random setting in Goshen when it didn't matter made a tremendous difference 400 years later when it did matter. Now, we tend to skip ahead here because the Bible record is not very detailed. Up until now, we've got a lot of information about them living, uh, about how Joseph rose to power and brought his brothers in. Joseph dreams, gets beat up by his brothers, ascends to power, gets thrown in prison, and more dreams, gets out, like with lots of detail about that. When Genesis turns to Exodus, there's a verse that indicates a sudden shift in the wind for God's people. And it doesn't seem terribly emphatic, but it is a turn indicator and things are never the same again. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. If you're taking notes, write down sometimes kings change. They do. Sometimes kings change, and when they change, things change. After all the details of Joseph's amazing life, we don't know much over the next 400 years, except the fact that they are subject to cruel Egyptian rulers for centuries. There is no way to overestimate the effect that this might have had on the Hebrew people. And because we tell the story quickly and we don't have a whole lot of detail, we can skip over 400 years of slavery and forget the passage of time and its logical effects on their psyche. There were some of God's people in Egypt whose grandparents were slaves, whose parents were slaves, and they were slaves, and their children would be slaves, and their grandchildren would be slaves. You think about it from a time perspective, Joseph would have been like a young Abraham Lincoln to some of the slaves. He was that far back in history. And and Moses would have been 200 years in the future to those same slaves. There were people to whom Joseph was a distant story and Moses was not even a reality yet. And that entire time they were slaves. When we think about what we know now about the effects of incarceration on the human psyche, and that a man or a woman who spends decades of their life in prison may be released and may never, ever be the same. What are the long-term generational effects of slave conditions on the hearts and minds of people? Does someone four or five generations deep into slavery even have a grid for what freedom means? I was reading an article from the Washington Post this week about the emancipation of slaves in the United States after the Civil War and some of the psychological effects that it had on them. One man wrote about his grandfather who had been a slave. The man who wrote this was, has long since passed away. But he said his father had been a slave and he was grateful for freedom, but he never owned it and he never talked about himself as if he were free. He just could not even comprehend that that was a reality for him. Even so, after 400 years in their hearts, the Hebrews remembered home and their hearts yearned for it. How do you maintain a yearning for another land for 400 years and generation after generation after generation? It is because their hope lie buried in that land. We learn this from one of the last stories in the record of Genesis. So we're going to go back in time just a little bit from the Pharaoh that did not know 
Joseph, just a little bit before that, okay? There was a lot of living and dying between Joseph's arrival and the coming of the new hostile Pharaoh. Time passed. Crops and families grew big in Goshen, and they multiplied. There are seasons, even in Egypt, where you can find great success. And relatively early in the Hebrews' stay in Israel, Jacob, Joseph's father, gathers his sons all to his side, and he pronounces specific blessings over each son. And they're, they're epic, and they're, they're strong, and when you read them, you think, these are the words of a dying man because nobody would say these things if they were going to be around us to clean up the mess. Like he says some kind of harsh things. He says to his oldest son, Reuben, you're my firstborn, but you're not going to have preeminence. I'm sorry, Reuben, you're the oldest, but somebody else is going to lead. He says to Simon and Levi, you are violent and we are not going to take your counsel. You two, we're not listening to you. You are men of war. He says to Judah, you are a lion. To Zebulun, he says, you're going to live on the coast. Can you imagine Zebulun? That's my word. I'm going to live in the ocean. He says to Joseph, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. I'm giving you more than I even received from my parents. And then Jacob dies. Jacob, son of Isaac, grandson of Abraham, who received all the promises about becoming a great nation, going, coming into a land that would not be, belong to anybody else, would be their own land. He dies in Egypt. For his children and grandchildren who looked for a promised land, this was an interesting development, to say the least. Now, granted, he was 147 years old. He wasn't going to live forever, but this is not how they thought this was going to pan out. Even before the days of slavery, when they were finding prosperity and expansion in Goshen, life in Egypt had its share of legitimate disappointments, and it would get harder before it would get easier. Give me a second here for a parallel thought here focused on our own modern day. The struggles that we are encountering right now are going to pale with the struggles that we may face in our own lifetime and surely our children will face. I have great faith in God, but I also anticipate life for those who to profess Jesus and live it out is going to get more and more difficult to the point where even professing Jesus is going to receive great backlash. Right now, as believers, we are considered quaint or perhaps weird. There is a time in the future we'll be considered a threat. The coming years will probably see some of the most hostile environment that believers have ever seen, certainly within our own nation, the most hostile we've ever seen. And the, as the world tries to push our faith only into the private realm and in turn even invades our private realm to dictate what we do, it will get thorny. I think in our lifetime, if not in our lifetime, surely in our children's lifetime. And so we turn and we, we focus on preparing them for what we may not have to face. The invasion of the world into our private life is getting more and more clear. And I've not talked a whole lot about this, but let me just mention this. And uh, when I say I'm using this as an example, understand I am, I am neither encouraging you or discouraging you from getting a COVID vaccine. This is not this is not specifically about the vaccine. But as convictions as simple as autonomy over our own bodies become challenging and it becomes difficult to travel without getting it or perhaps other things, the government will continue to dictate things that invade into our private lives. 
And there are things that we can do to mitigate the process. We can vote for godly leaders. We can pray. We can uh, support life-affirming policies. We can be salt and light in a dark and decaying world, but we never can lose sight of one thing. At some point, we come out of Egypt. Maybe tenable for a while. Maybe it get difficult for a while. But no matter what the world events hold for us, this world is not our home. The world that comes into your home on that little box that you were so fixated about that we, we watch the updates every hour, that's not even our home. Sometimes people will take a passage from Jeremiah and they will use it to um, uh almost make peace with, with the world they live in. And it's a great passage. I've quoted it before. Jeremiah 29, 7 says, but seek the welfare of the city that I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. That is a prophetic word. And it is true. We should seek the peace of our city and we should seek to be a blessing to our city. But even there, he admits he's talking to people that are captive. He's talking to people that are slaves. That is not their home. The writer of Hebrews went on to say it this way in 13, 14, for here we have no lasting city, but the, we seek the city that is to come. Jacob, the patriarch who died before seeing the promised land, was so certain that one day he would leave that centuries before the fact, he gave his people distinct instructions on what to do with his body when he died. Go back to Genesis uh, chapter 49. Verse 29, 33. Now here he is. He has just laid all of these blessings, or some of the brothers maybe didn't even think they were a blessing, but uh, prophetic words on each of his kids. And in Genesis 49, 29 to 33, then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field, uh, with the field from Ephron the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. He gives he's like this is the lot number, this is the plot number, this is where the headstone is, and I want to be faced that way. He gives them really clear instructions about where he's going to be buried. He goes on to say, they're buried. They buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittite. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. What an ending. He tells them, this is what you're getting. This is where I want to be buried. Pulls his covers up and dies. With those instructions, bury me in Canaan in the cave of the patriarchs. Now, with that, these people who are about to be subject to Pharaoh as slaves, okay? They're not in slavery yet, but it's coming very soon, just in a couple of verses. They do something that they might not have been able to imagine doing a few decades later. They use the freedom they had before they lost it. Friends, even if we think we're losing freedoms, it's important to use the freedoms that we have before we lose them. The people that will soon be enslaved because they are God's people and are not Egyptian commit one last radical act of free expression. At this point, they're not slaves, but it's not far off. They're able to travel. So they leave Egypt and they go and they bury Jacob in Canaan. And then they go back to Egypt. 
Why did they take Jacob's bones to Canaan? At this point, they had been in Egypt for years. They had not gone back and forth, or at least there's no record of it. It's a 500-mile trip. It's not as if they would have done this recreationally. And before they take him there, the process is intricate. Because he was the son of Joseph, the Bible says that the Egyptians had a 17-day mourning period. Then it took 40 days to embalm the body. When they entered Canaan, they had to stop for another seven days, and they mourned again. Why go through all of this trouble to bury the patriarch in a land where they did not live? Because he was more than a patriarch. He was the representation of, the, of a dream that one day they would return. What do you do when the dream dies? You ever had a dream just pull up the covers and die on you? Something you thought you heard from the Lord or something that um, maybe you did hear from the Lord. It really was God and you believed it or you thought you did. And then something happened and had it worked out the way you thought it would have been so encouraging to your heart and you would have given all the glory to God. And then it just pulled up the covers and died. You know, as we uh, meet, continue on Zoom and around our house, we talk a lot about buildings, uh, pray about buildings, drive by buildings, walk and look in buildings. Think about how a church meets and where a church meets. And uh, we were having dinner on Friday night. And we started talking about buildings. And, and Kelsey and I realized we, got, we, have, some, we have some building stories. Uh, particularly, we have three. I'm going to tell you really very quickly these three building stories. Two of them are great. And then I'm going to tell you the third. Um, years ago, Kelsey was directing the Cincinnati House of Prayer. And it was uh, multiple prayer meetings every week. It was increasing. People were coming in. Uh, we had more and more musicians and singers, and we could expand. Uh, but it was bouncing from location to location. It's very difficult to have a house of prayer without a house. Uh, it just it's, it was very hard. And, and so we were bouncing from place to place. And Kelsey became acquainted with uh, a gentleman who had a number of properties. She actually never met him, but she was kind of a friend of a friend, I think. And so she calls him on the phone and describes what it is that God is doing and what we're trying to build there. She said, we want to build a place where prayer can go up night and day and where young moms can stop and get prayer for their sick child, even on the way to the emergency room, and where we continue to pray because Jesus is worth it. We just want to pray as much as we can. And so she asked him to give her space. And on the spot, the guy gives her nearly 10,000 square feet in a building that he owns. And that ministry used it rent-free for many years, even after we left Cincinnati. I, to this day, I don't know that they're paying rent. They're in another one of his properties. But for, I mean, five, six, seven years at least, they paid no rent whatsoever because she made that one phone call. Um, just 13 years ago, Kelsey and I, along with another couple, were launching the Daniel Academy. Some of you are familiar with a, a local Christian school. And it, it came together very quickly. We decided uh, really to hardcore to do it in April. And we started that fall with 200 students, K through 12, which is not the way to start a school, we found out later, uh, but, but it worked. And it was summertime and we did not have a building yet. And we're telling people, we're looking, we'll find something, we don't have one. And I heard of a building and I went and looked at it and it was perfect. They asked, uh, they're, they're asking price for it. And it was multiple times more than what I could even pretend that we had. And I offered them a third of the price. And even though they had a full offer from another entity like ours that was established and we were a startup, they took our offer. That was 13 years ago. And that school now owns that building. They're not renting it anymore. Now, not every building story I have ends that way. And I tell you those two 
because I, I have to give you context for the third. In the late 90s, we were church planting in Cincinnati and uh, didn't have a building that <laughs> you can imagine. And so here we're doing this. And just down the street from us, there is a building that was the original College Football Hall of Fame. Now, the College Football Hall of Fame moved somewhere else after that. The building was left over. It was a big brick building with white columns. You drove by it. Everybody who didn't know what it was assumed it was a church. It looked like a church. It was about 40,000 square feet. And uh, we prayed, Lord, would you give us that building? Would you be so kind as to allow, we don't care if we own it. We don't care who owns it. But would you let us meet there? Would you let us uh, pray there? Would you let us teach there and, and give us access to it? We're praying about night and day worship and about revival and about the idea of stadiums being filled with people worshiping. And on the backside of this thing, there was a 5,000 seat stadium. It's like, this could not get better. So we start to pray. We'd gather on the steps with some folks from our church and we would pray. Jackson, who's now 27, uh, was a little guy. He would write prayers in a little notebook and he would fold up the paper and he would stick them in the cracks of the building. Um, and leave them there. I would walk around those five acres and, and pray. And Kelsey would meet with, with women on the, on the front steps and pray a couple times a week. We approached the owner's representative, uh, the, the company that owned uh, Chiquita Banana, the family owned, also owned this building. They were believers. And we thought maybe if they'd kind of hear our story, they might be interested. And he let us do a walkthrough, said it really wasn't for sale, but yes, everything was for sale. October 24th, 1999, I am speaking in Memphis, Tennessee. And I share the story of this building that we really feel the Lord has this building for us. And a man approaches me afterwards. And uh, he said, what you have spoken to me really, really touches my heart. I want to buy this building for you. And um, I'm like, you know, they're telling us it's about a $4 million property court. Who knows what it'd be worth now. But he said, I, I want to buy this building for you. Let, let's stay in contact. And well, absolutely, I'll stay in contact. So we emailed and we texted and, and we called and uh, went back and forth. I went back and spoke to the owners, uh, building owners representatives and did all the background work that I knew how to do. And after about six weeks, maybe, I mean, it was longer than that, I guess, of almost daily connection. The buyer goes silent. He doesn't respond to emails. He doesn't take calls. After a couple of weeks, I reach out to his pastor. And I said, uh, I knew his pastor was a friend of mine. I said, what happened with this guy? And he said, I don't know. He said, I haven't seen him in a while, but I have a hunch that he hoped an investment would sell and it hasn't sell, hasn't sold. If you go to the location now of that building, right now, if you drive up to it, at the corner of Kings Island Drive and Kings Mill Road, the building is gone. Even the stadium grandstands have been dismantled. There is a smooth piece of concrete where that whole dream once stood. And it, for a long time, that was hard. It was like our dream died. Like they, they, it wasn't just that we didn't get the building. They demolished the building. One of the most important questions to answer when you encounter difficulty or when your dream dies is where do you put that dream? When things appear, they're not going to work out the way you think they're going to work out. Where do you posit, deposit the corpse of your hopes? Do you bury it in Egypt where it died, or do you put it somewhere else? Do you think about it in a different way? Where do you put the hopes and dreams in the ground where you stand or in the place where you believe God is taking you? 
Joseph and his brothers, in one of the most intricately described funeral processions in the Bible, they carry Joseph back to Canaan, and they bury him where Abraham was buried with his promises. And they do so to serve more than one purpose. You see, for the Hebrews, there was a distinct idea that burial was a very temporary thing. Isaiah 26, 19 speaks to their mindset, where it talks about uh, your dead shall live and their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for dew is the dew of light, and earth will give birth to the dead. So the Hebrews placed their dead in the place where they expected to see them again one day. So they didn't bury Jacob, the patriarch in Egypt. They buried him in Canaan because that's where their promises were. They buried the bones of Jacob where they believed they were going to be one day. Now, this was not easy. It was a trip. I told you, it's 500 miles. And if you look at extra biblical sources, if you look at uh, um, contemporary histories and other things that have been written, they're not scripture, and uh, I wouldn't teach them as such, but there's some indication that the story of this funeral was a doozy. Like, there, there was family drama. According to the Talmud, which is the Jewish civil and family law and history book, the family, family drama here is off the charts. Again, we don't know for sure that this happened, but this at the very least is the Jewish perception of what happened down through the centuries. The Bible tells us they take, they take his bones to Canaan and they, then they return to Egypt. Jewish tradition tells us that when the family made the journey to Canaan, once they got there, they encounter Esau, Jacob's brother. At the time of burial, Uncle Esau shows up, and he disputes Jacob's right to the burial spot. Tradition says that when Jacob bought his brother's birthright when they were young men for a bowl of stew, that along with it came the right to be buried in the cave of the patriarchs. And on these ancient Middle Eastern texts, again, not scripture, but a contemporary record of the events, it says this, when they sold the birthright. Jacob wrote the whole of this in a book, and he testified the same to witnesses, and he sealed it, and the book remained in the hands of Jacob. In other words, when he bought the birthright, there was some sort of legal deed to all this that was filled out, or at least tradition tells us this. Fast forward to Jacob's death. Again, according to Jewish tradition, not necessarily scripture, at the point where they're going to intern him in the cave, Esau shows up, says he should be buried in the cave, and so one of Jacob's sons had to go all the way back to Egypt to get the written agreement that said that Jacob had the title to the cave. And while he is traveling, one of Jacob's grandsons gets so tired of waiting and gets so angry about his grandfather laying there in the sun that he attacks Esau with a club and tradition said Esau's head rolled down into the cave. So in the end, he kind of got his wish. To this day, this, this cave is called the Sepulchre of the Patriarchs, but the, the optional name that is actually used in the area is the Cave of Esau's Head. Why go through all of this trouble to bury Jacob in the Promised Land? Like, why, It seems like there's a lot of drama and a lot of, like, why would they go through all this? Two reasons. They buried Jacob in the Promised Land to connect with what is eternal. This was a place that was very near and dear to the hearts of the Hebrews. Even though they didn't have it yet, they had been promised it 
through their ancestors. And Jacob was laying with his ancestors in his cave. Abraham was there with Sarah. Isaac was there with Rebekah. Jacob's wife, Leah, was there. And by insisting they bury him in this cave, they were making the statement that his life and death was tied to the promises of old. It is right and even wise to connect your life with the promises of God that are yet to be fulfilled. When we read scripture, we, saw, we see all sorts of things that have not yet come to pass. Or they have come to pass partially, but not in a whole. What promises in the Bible are you living for? And if need be, dying for, but refusing to surrender. How I live my life, and if the Lord takes me, how I want to be remembered in death when I am gone by my children, is that the entire time I was looking for the fulfillment of Joel 2 that Peter preached about in Acts 3. I want them to talk about that. I want them to remember that, that dad believed in Acts 2.17, that in the last days, God declares he would pour out a spirit on all flesh. I want my kids to think about that in my life and when I'm gone. Even if I don't fully see it, I want my family to see, he say he's still looking for that. They buried him there to connect him to the promises of old. Second, they buried Jacob there in the promised land to declare that is where they were going. Imagine Jacob dies there in Egypt. Should we bury him here? Well, no, we're not going to be here forever. We're going to be here 400 years. I mean, they didn't know that at the time, but by the leading of God, they buried him where they were going to go. People of faith have an interesting relationship with death. It's not as simple as people think. People say the only sure thing in life is death and taxes. No, taxes are more sure than death. Death is called the great equalizer, but it's not. Not everything that dies stays dead. The people of God who appear to die are with him in paradise. The Bible tells us that. And the dreams of God, which appear to die, are just put on prophetic pause until God presses the go button. And how you regard those dreams and where you put them matters. In this case, Jacob dies, but where they put the body would be a deposit for things to come. Should we bury him here in Egypt? No, no, no. We don't intend on being in Egypt forever. It might be here 400 years, but let's bury him someplace that we intend on being. They were anchoring in hope by putting the body of Jacob in the promised land. Now, the chances are we have all watched a lot of dreams die over the years. Maybe you felt there was going to be an open door to ministry somewhere, and uh, it just didn't work. Seems like it died. Maybe you felt a relationship would blossom that did not. Um, maybe you believed for a property like we did. And then later they bulldozed that property and it's gone. Those dreams died. What we do with those dreams when they feel like they die really matters. It is important that we choose to bury those unrealized dreams in hope. Maybe the location was just given to us to dream about, but the hope is still real. I pray for the activity to this day that we dreamed about in that building. We dreamed of taking care of the poor out of the building, soup kitchens. We dreamed of a prayer room out of that place. We dreamed of sending ministries. Like an, We didn't even have a language for it at the time. Now we would call it like an apostolic center, a, a congregation, yes, but more, of a, more than a congregation, something that would be a significant force around the world. That's what we dreamed about. Let me tell you, I buried that dream where we're going, not where we were. I have found myself pondering that building a lot this week. 
and thinking about dreams that have died. Yesterday, and I don't even know how I found this, but yesterday I, uh, I ran across a commemorative coin on eBay that is a picture of that building, the College Football Hall of Fame, Kingsville's Ohio, commemorative coin with the, like, you, it's hard to find a picture of the building. There aren't that many online and the building's gone. You can, if you go look at Google Maps, it's just a greasy spot right now. But I bought the, I bought the coin on eBay because I want to be remembered and I want to pray for the visions and the dreams that we had for that place. The building wasn't the point. The dream was the point. And I want to pray in faith. Maybe we assumed some things about where it was going to happen, but we got God's heart right. And I'm so convinced that it was God that I believe we'll see the fullness of it. Jacob was dead. The container was gone, but the dream of our promised land was still alive. Where you bury the bones of your dead hopes and dreams matters. I want to take a few minutes tonight or this morning, and I want to, um, to pray for what some of you may feel were real disappointments. Things that you believed for didn't pan out the way you thought. How you carry those things and what you do with the corpse of those hopes can change things. And there are dreams that some of you have had that because circumstances changed, you surrendered the dream because you couldn't have imagined it working out any other way. And God is saying, no, the promised land, that, that's still a real thing. You may have to bury Jacob there. You may have to bring J Joseph's bones with you, but you're coming out of Egypt at some point. And all of those promises still matter. If you're not with us uh, on a regular basis, maybe you're here for the first time, Every week, people kind of pop in. Uh, a lot of times, at the end of our of our teaching, we'll just take a moment. We'll just pray into what we're talking about. And so, I'm going to open, but I really would encourage others of you to pray that God would stir up the dreams, maybe that you have had or that others have had, that seem to have fallen by the wayside. For some of you, this is actually a painful discussion because the death of that dream was so hard. I remember the first time I pulled into that parking lot and saw that the entire building was gone. Like up until that, even with the buyer out of the picture, I still kept thinking somehow, maybe, but you know, the Lord's like, no, the building's gone. Is the dream alive? You've been listening to the third cup of coffee. My name is Randy Bolander. Hope you have a great week. We will be back middle of the week next week with part three of our series on Egypt. Have a great day.